Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, and welcome to a special New Year's Eve edition of The Neutral Ground. Today we'll sit down with crime analyst Jeff Asher, who will talk about the year in homicides in New Orleans. As always, a lot of murders here, but uh, actually the lowest number we've seen in nearly five decades. Uh, Next, we'll sit down with reporter Feynman Roberts, who will regale us with tales of Al Morella, a gadfly whose attendance at Jefferson Parish council meetings is better than some of the members of that board. And last, we'll sit down with features writer Sue Strachan, who will give us a little primer on how to enjoy champagne on this special night. Okay, well, joining us first is uh, Jeff Asher, who a crime analyst who uh, works for the city council as a public safety analyst. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming by today. Thanks for having me. So uh, some really encouraging numbers, I guess you'd have to call them, uh, murder numbers at the end of the year. I mean, every year we, we write this story in New Orleans about how how the year went in violence, and it's always a discouraging story. And I guess in that sense, it, it still is this year, but a lot better than uh, better than we've seen in decades, really. Yeah, it's, it's really the dichotomy of the fact that we're under 150 murders. I think we're at 142 or 143 right now with with just a day or two remaining in the year. So we'll probably be around that number when the year ends. And that'll be the first time since 1971 that we've been under 150 murders. Uh, it's will probably be in the top four nationally, probably fourth nationally in murder rate, um, which is no different than we've been the last few years, but we'll probably have the lowest murder rate in terms of uh, murders per 100,000 residents relative to 1986 or 1987, the last time we've been this low. So uh, in terms of the total numbers, very good good kind of in air quotes, because uh, even 143 murders, that's 143 lives shattered. That's um, families whose years or or lives have been ruined Mm -hmm. by these incidents. That's 143 residents' lives lost. Um, And it's the type of thing that we're still fourth nationally. So we're still one of the most violent cities in the country. Uh, When we look at murder, you sort of have to take it in stride, you have to appreciate that there has been a significant drop in murder, but also recognize that there's a lot of work to do just to get us to the point where we would be even where you'd say even acceptable in that category. Right. I mean, I would say we're probably a long way to go from that. But I guess if you look at New Orleans relative to itself, we're doing a little better than we've done. Um, and and another metric we should mention here is, is shooting incidents, which I know in the past, Jeff, you've often pointed out that that's really the number that is more meaningful in some ways because shootings are essentially we, – we can interpret them as, as someone attempting to kill someone else generally. And so those are the things we're really trying to stop and whether they succeed at killing someone is sort of – it's important, of course, but 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 the violent act is the shooting, and, and those are also those are actually down more significantly than murders this year. Yeah, the shootings, and we've had a, a slight bump towards the end of December, mm-hmm. but both shootings and murders are down in the twenty to twenty five percent range relative to last year. Shootings, we've had ten fewer than any year that I have data for, and I have data going back to two thousand ten in terms mm-hmm. of shooting incident numbers. Uh, shootings can be a, a, a tricky thing in two thousand fourteen. 
we had 70 more people or 70 more shooting incidents in 2014 relative to 2013, but six fewer murders. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, we had one person shot, one more person shot in 2017 than 2016, but we had 15 fewer murders. Mm -hmm. So if you see patterns like that, you expect generally that to sort of even out and uh, regress to the mean. This year, the shooting number is is down to levels that we haven't seen Mm -hmm. since we have data for. Um, and the murder vi- victim numbers is down similarly. So that suggests that there was a significant drop in gun violence. Um, you know, sort of explaining it and explaining whether or not it, that drop has longevity to it or whether or not it's a short-term fluctuation, uh, that's a little bit more difficult. But measuring the drop says that it was a very real drop in gun violence here. In other words, we didn't just get lucky with the EMS getting there quickly or or poor aim. This is an actual, seems to be an actual reduction in gun violence. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think 33% of shooting incidents were fatal this year. And last year it was 28 or 29%. So uh, when you talk about luck or randomness or whatever people want to say, as far as the thing that happens when the bullet leaves the gun as to whether or not uh, that shooting is a non-fatal shooting or a murder, that was not something that was necessarily, quote, on our side this year relative to last year. And both shootings and murders were down, which suggests that there was a very real drop in gun violence. And we could have had an even larger reduction in murders had we been "quote unquote" lucky. In other words, yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> uh, you know that that tends to go up and down. Right. Uh, we were about average this year, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't really mean in we'll be lucky or unlucky next year. Right. Gotcha. Um, before I forget, I want to move on to something else. But who are the other? You mentioned that we're in the top four, and we generally are in terms of murders. <laughs> what are the other? top four cities in terms of uh, uh, most murderous places? St. Louis and Baltimore will be one and two, respectively. Uh, Detroit and New Orleans will be three and four. Mm -hmm. It'll be tenths of a percent or tenths of a point difference in terms of murder rate, just because both cities are having historically low drops in murder. Um, Baltimore and St. Louis are two cities that have had significantly more murders over the last three or four years relative to previous years, but it's a, a, a bit of a, a cheat to have them at the top two because uh, murder rates are drawn from where you define the city. And right. St. Louis is is heavily, it's a, several million people in the St. Louis metro area and the city of St. Louis is 300,000. Uh, Baltimore similarly has several million people in that metro area and the Baltimore metro area, the Baltimore city area is only about 600,000. So it's a bit of partly just whether the sort of high crime areas are in the city and then how large the city is relative to the metro area. Yeah, that's correct. So it, it a lot of murder rate depends exactly on mm-hmm. where the lines are drawn, why they're drawn. Um, so, but St. Louis and Baltimore have been one and two in murder every year since I think 2013. Um, New Orleans was number three and four with Detroit most of the last few years. If New Orleans wants to drop out of the top four, there'd have to be about 120 murders to, to hit so where Newark is. So take a real sustained drop to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to move on a little bit. We've talked about this before, but I guess one of the discouraging, obviously this is this is unalloyed good news, I would say, to the, a reduction in gun violence like this, but the the downside to it might be that we don't necessarily understand what's driving it, and therefore, but maybe you can explain this better than I can. I mean, what do you think is driving it, or do you know? We we don't really know. I know that whenever there's an increase in uh, murder, it, it's usually described by 
uh, law enforcement as factors out of their control. And when usually there's a decrease in some sort of crime, it's usually described by law enforcement as factors that they were controlling. Right. Um, you know, it, it, what is it? Uh, so um, sort of like the economy when you're president. Exactly. It's like, yeah, if you did all these smart things when the economy is great and when it's not, it's because of. Yeah. Success has many fathers and failures right. and orphans. Um, it, which is, is not to say that law enforcement is not responsible for this drop. It's just not necessarily clear. I know that um, when you look at something like armed robberies, this is the third straight year of armed robberies falling. Uh, there's pretty clear evidence that there's been an increase in armed robbery arrests. There's been a focus on armed robberies for NOPD now for uh, two and a half years since mid-2016. So that's the type of thing that you would point to and say, okay, it's it's there's been a drop and it's logical that law enforcement led action is, mm -hmm. is what's causing this. I think with, um, it, when violence fell in new Orleans in 2013, there was pretty clear evidence that the anti-gang work mm -hmm. was responsible and that success couldn't be sustained, but it was pretty clear that the, the initial drop was largely related to the, um, indictments and the mm -hmm. call-ins in some form or fashion. Right here. There has not been any sort of major, Initiative. Initiative. Like the uh, the Tiger Unit took on non-fatal shootings under their wing in May, March of 2017. I guess that's the thing that you would point to as the law enforcement initiative. Um, it's plausible that there's just been sort of strategy that hasn't been publicized well and is is working. Um, it's it's hard to say. So I wouldn't rule out that law enforcement is an NOPD-led activity is what's driving this. It's just not as clear in, you know, the homicide arrest numbers are similar to what they've been in previous years. I think the non-fatal shooting numbers are up a bit, um, but still the under 50%. Numbers, yeah. 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 So it, it, it's plausible that that's something that's driving it. It's hard to say for certain. Uh -huh. And then, so with that as sort of the, if we don't understand what's driving it, it's hard to say that this is a permanent change. Obviously, right. everyone wants it to be a permanent change, and that's what you hope it is. But as, as someone that tries to explain what's happening and estimate whether or not what's happening, it can be sustained, it's hard to say definitively yes, based on a lack of understanding. Right. And so it's, I guess, hard to, to predict what we might see in the coming year. Based yeah, on it's really hard. I mean, we had from mid-2016 to mid-2017, we had over 200 murders. We had almost an average of two people shot per day over the course of a full year. Um, and if you'd asked to predict in the summer of 2017 what the future looked like, you and I, you know, I've I've looked at it and I, I wrote incredibly bleak things about <laughs> if this if this is what the future looks like, it's incredibly bleak because we've seen this huge surge in violence. Right. Now we've seen this trough of violence, and if you look ahead, you'd love for this to be the trend line. I guess having looked at the summer of mid 2016 to mid 2017 and thought that it was a change um, and been wrong about that gives me pause to say that this change is these things permanent. could be sort of cyclical. They, it could be yeah. it, it could be that this is sort of a violence got out of hand for a year and now we've seen a good year um, sort of regressing in the mean. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to say with something like this. It's been a 50 year problem, so it's not something that I don't think NOPD or policymakers have suddenly. You know, said, aha, that's the issue and right. that's how we do it. Um, but it's also plausible that we've had a good approach and a good national environment for with murder going down nationally. Mm -hmm. And that's a driver. Well, uh, thanks for sharing your insights as always, Jeff. I appreciate you coming by today. Thanks for having me. All right.
All right, joining me now is Feynman Roberts, who covers Jefferson Parish for The Advocate. Uh, thanks for coming by, Feynman. Great to be here, Gordon. So Feynman had this fantastic profile of a guy named Al Morella the other day. Um, and he's kind of, he's the sort of person uh, that you might find, uh, he's unique, but he's a kind of a breed of cat that you might find at a lot of public bodies, a sort of a gadfly, you might say. Right. You find him in all over local government. And each so. one is distinct, but right. the, each one has its own flavor. And, right. and this was an interesting profile of this guy. Um, rather than me try to describe him, let's listen to some sound of Mr. Morella for a second. Mike Ganey, I'm demanding your resignation effective immediately. Also... Secretary of State Tom Schettler, I'm the de- I'm the demanding your uh, resignation effective immediately as well. Uh, last year, I demanded uh, Secretary of State Schettler's resignation for incompetence. If he would have resigned back then, the people of Louisiana wouldn't have to be going through this embarrassment that they're going through now. Okay, but uh, people like that don't have any shame in their game. I understand. So, Feynman. Uh- Mr. Morella, he, he does this at almost every meeting? Yeah. Al Morella attends every Jefferson Parish Council meeting, except for some of the ones that are in Grand Isle. He goes to every Kenner City Council meeting, because as he will tell you, at every single meeting, he lives at 40... Well, I don't want to give out his address, but... <laughs> well, he gives it out every it's time. True, it's true. <laughs> 4260 East Loyola Drive. Kenner, uh, what used to be unincorporated Jefferson, um, but he is a proud attender of all these meetings. So his attendance record is almost unblemished, except when they meet in Grand Isle, which is two hours away. Right. I, yeah, I'd say his attendance record rivals that of most of the council members. Wow. Yeah. So how do the count? So so he typically will. Does he question them on every agenda item or certain ones? No, he typically has some items that he wants to bring up and. You know, in these public, in these local government meetings, you always have a public comment period at the end in which the public comment, the public can address the council on matters not on the agenda. Okay. And Al's always got a couple of items he wants to bring up then. Sometimes during the meeting on a particular agenda item, he will say something, uh, but not always. That's much more infrequent. But he speaks, invariably, he speaks, he says at least something at every single meeting. And during sort of the public comment. Right. Does he does he ask for Mike Yanny's resignation at every meeting? Or, every I'm sorry, parish not council ask meeting. For, he demands his He resi- demands it. Okay. <laughs> Mike Yanny, I'm demanding your resignation effective immediately. And is is his demand on the grounds of the uh, sexting scandal? Yeah. Okay. It was that, that's what started the demands for Yanny's resignation. Right. That's okay. exactly right. He he uh, And he's got a sign in his yard. That says, take, I think it says, take a hike, Mike. Uh, resign. So he's been he's been leading the call for Mike Yenny to resign from the beginning. Now, would you say this guy has a following or like, well, tell me how, how does the council regard this guy when he's sort of berating them? Or and are there any council members that he praises or does he kind of regard the whole bunch as? He's, he's not afraid to offer occasional droplets of praise to various council members. But the reactions that he normally gets, and as we detailed in the story, a little bit of amusement, uh, a lot of just studied indifference, and occasionally some of them will respond to him, you know, in a in a sort of angry or snappish way. <laughs> but for the most part, they just ignore him because it's sort of part of the ritual of, of the attending meeting, a Jefferson yeah. Parish Council meeting. No, I think you said that Yenny, I can't remember if you told me this or it was in the story, Yenny typically doesn't look at him, right? Because Yenny's facing the other way and right. the way the meetings are set up right. anyway. At the Jefferson Parish Council meeting, the, the public 
speaking mic podium is just behind where the parish president sits, and the parish president faces the council, and so the microphone is directly behind him. And Yenny is almost always, when he's there, he misses this part of the meeting sometimes, but when he's there, he's almost always just staring down at his desk, maybe writing something, or very studiously ignoring Alvarado. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what about the when he berates one of the council members or to their face? Do they typically respond, or do they sort of... Do they just sort of say next or, or it what? just sort of depends. Yeah. Um he has berated almost every single council person and sometimes they respond, sometimes they just can't help themselves but respond. We detail a couple of those in the story where I think Paul Johnston offered uh offered to take uh Almarella out in the Gulf or <laughs> or suggested that one of his colleagues wanted to take Almarella fishing out uh, way out in the Gulf, <laughs> implying uh, Leave him out there. That, that Amarella might not make the trip back. Yeah. I mean, he was doing it with humor. Sure. So sometimes there is some humor. Sometimes there's some banter. There's plenty, you know, plenty of ignoring as well. And what's this guy's aesthetic? I mean, he's kind of a snappy dresser. Or oh, he's uh, yeah. Almer- he's seventy two years old. He's seventy two years yeah. old. He is. Uh, he's almost as New Orleans as you can get. As a guy who grew up, sort of splitting his time between. Uh, Uptown New Orleans, before it was Uptown New Orleans. You know, uh-huh. He's a graduate of Forche, or he attended Forche High School, um, and Jefferson Parish. And he's a lifelong blue-collar guy, a union guy, uh-huh. um, who uh, he's got Which some, union was he in again? He's, he was, oh man, was he, he was in the Teamsters, a, uh-huh. and yeah, I think he was a longshoreman. In the, you know, and he, he talks, uh, frankly and proudly, of his days uh, preventing the union from being busted up by his various uh, – the management at the various longshoremen companies he worked at. Uh, he's a guy who loves the docks, who loves being a blue-collar guy, mm-hmm. who's got a good, thick New Orleans accent, just mm-hmm. really, you know, sort of that classic New Orleans yaddy right. tinge that you hear. Could be from Brooklyn. Yeah, he yeah. could be. I mean, this is Mike Yenny. I'm demanding your resignation. Before Brooklyn was Brooklyn. <laughs> right, right. Right in its previous incarnation, in the Bugs Bunny years, uh, he uh, he talks about things he read in the paper, and uh, he's and yeah, you're right. He's a snappy dresser. To get back to your thing, during the summer he wears what seems like an endless procession of pastel coats, and he has he has wingtips to match. He's just uh, he's a great New Orleans character, just just perfect for this city and and for Jefferson Parish as well. No. We sort of covered this a little bit, but I mean, does it, does he have a constituency, or is there anyone who kind of goes to these things and cheers him along, or is he kind of a is he a crowd of one, or does he when he is shouting at, at about something, does he does he sort of speak for a constituency in Jefferson Parish, even if they're not there, or is he sort of regarded as a lone lone wolf kind of crazy guy? Well, I mean, there's two different ways to regard him. You can regard him as Al Morella does, who Al Morella quickly. Uh, often refers to himself as really representing the people. Yeah. Uh, he's a man of the people. But I think for the most part, he's sort of lone wolf. There's not a group of people who go with him and cheer him on. Jefferson Parish has several other uh, frequent meeting attenders. Uh, generally, they're associated with one issue over and over. And Al will talk to those people, and they're all very friendly with Al, but I don't think Al has any sort of group behind him. It's just Al Morella saying what Al Morella thinks. Man of the people. He is a man. He, he doesn't have social media, any of that garbage. He doesn't have an answer machine or a computer. 
or uh, a cell phone. Who needs that stuff? Uh, not Al Morella. In fact, one of the great tidbits that's in the story, and I didn't really get to play it up like I would have liked, is he walks every morning along the lakefront in Kenner, and he listens to music. And it's all old music, Elvis and, and these sorts of things. But he listens to it on a portable compact disc player. And uh, <laughs> I asked him, I said, why don't you just get an iPod? You could have all your songs on the iPod. And he said, nah, man, I'm just not going to get any of that garbage. And so he cut his a Walkman. That's right. He, a Discman, in <laughs> fact. All right. Cut, Forgot he, about the Discman. He, he cut off his technology long about yeah. 1996 or so. And uh, and that's where it sort of stuck. He's just a just an incredibly colorful all character. Right. Well, it was a really enjoyable piece. Uh, go back and read it if you missed it. Feynman Roberts on Al Morella. Um, and uh, thanks for joining me today, Feynman. Great. Thanks for having me, Gordon. All right. All right. Well, joining me now is uh, Sue Strachan. She's a features writer here at The Advocate. Uh, Sue, thanks for coming by. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited. We're talking about champagne, one of my me favorite too. things. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you going to drink a little bit of champagne tonight? You of think? course. Of course. It, it's the night, New Year's Eve. It is. Well, when so when we talk about champagne, champagne has to be a specific thing, right? I mean, we, we tend to refer to it generically as sparkling wine, but what is champagne technically? Champagne can only come from one place, from the Champagne region of France. Uh, the grapes have to be grown there and it has to be produced there. Uh, the champagne that's made there is, is in it created in a process called method champagnes. Sorry about my bad French. Better than mine. <laughs> and um, it's a how they it's how they ferment it. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a it's a it's a complicated process. And for simplicity simplicity's purpose, I'm not going to go too much into it. But discovered by Dom Perignon. But no. Discovered by Dom Perignon. Um, a Benedictine fact, monk. A Benedictine monk. Um, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> That's how we have Benedictine, the, yeah. the liqueur. And it's been popular, as I said, it's been popular since then. Champagne, you know, Winston Churchill liked Paul Roger, uh, Beyonce liked Armand de Brignac. Again, sorry about my bad French. <laughs> uh, Marilyn Monroe liked Dom Perignon. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dom Perignon, as an aside, is called it Tete de Cuvée, which is the top of the line mm -hmm. champagnes, which are obviously a lot more expensive, and also include Cristal, which is made by Louis, Louis Rodier. Um, and who's considered one of the big houses, champagne houses, um, which include Mouet Chandon, mm -hmm. um, which um, what is they do Mouet Chandon, and that's Dom Perignon, and then um, Louis Roder does Cristal, and then it go, kind of goes like that. JH Mom does Moms. And what's the top line bottle go for? Roughly hundred bucks. Um, like no, a, a lot more. I mean, like a like a regular bottle of a Dom Perignon. A lot. God, you know, pricing wise, I would say probably. About one seventy five wow. or so. I could be wrong. Um, that's way beyond. That's way. <laughs> that's way beyond my price range <laughs> right now. Um, I like to taste it if someone's opening one. Right. I'm more the mid level champagne yeah. at this point. <laughs> um, like the Vauve Clicquot. Yeah. Um, I like. That's more popular right now. It's not my favorite. Um, the best place to actually taste champagne or sparkling wine. Let's get into sparkling yeah. wine. Sparkling wine is everything made out of Champagne region. And in different regions, it's called um, something else. For example, everywhere else in France, it's called Cremant. Mm -hmm. And in Germany, it's called Sect. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, it's Prosecco. Uh -huh, and which I'm, is very popular. It's extremely popular. Um, a great way to kind of tell the difference between them all is um, to do a taste test, mm -hmm. a bottle taste test. But in New Orleans, it's really easy because you can go to effervescence 
on Rampart Street and they have these champagne flights where you can go through different regions and different types of champagne and sparkling wines to find out what you like. Cool. Now, are there, uh, I know that only champagne has to come from a certain region in France. Are there distinct differences other than that? But like, is there a difference in the sort of like the amount of bubbliness or is it like if you were closing your eyes, would you know if you were drinking champagne or say cava or Prosecco? You know what, Nick? I, I'll, as the amateur, I would probably say no. I could tell you can tell the difference between I think champagne and prosecco really easily because prosecco is very light. Uh-huh. It has very small bubbles. The bubbles aren't really, as sort of harsh. And then the um, champagne has bigger bubbles, and it's a it's a heavier. I like to kind of compare it to almost like drinking red wine, whereas. Um, you know, the Prosecco is more like a Merlot and the Champagne is like a Cabernet. It's a little gotcha. heavier. Yeah. Um, it's got a prettier, prettier glow, more of the mm-hmm. Champagne color that you're used to. Prosecco can kind of look washed out. It's a you, little pale. It's very, very pale. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing about, you know, Champagne, I, I, what I found out in the story that there's Gruet is from New Mexico and then there's champagne from England. It's it's grown wherever, you know, the champagne grape, not the champagne grapes, but the, um, the, grape, the variety of grapes can grow. They typically use, uh, is it uh, Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc? They use, a, they use a Chardonnay. And when you see a champagne bottle, it's called Blanc de Blancs. And then they do another combination of Pinot Noir or Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier grapes, which on the bottle would say blank de noir. Uh-huh. Um, so white of whites and white of blacks. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so those are the Pinot Noir and the Pinot Meunier grapes are red grapes. But so why it's not red when you see it is because they take the uh, skins out quickly. Quickly. And then when you see um, pink champagne, which is now poetically called rose champagne, uh-huh. it means they've either um, left the skins on and or have added red wine to I it. See. Of sorts. Or it's Andre. Or it's Andre or Cold Duck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And you had an interesting video accompanying this story where uh, the a guy from Emerald. Taylor Terrebonne, the sommelier. And yeah. he, was, uh, he was opening it with kind of what looked like a large butter knife almost or something. Yeah, it was um, a, a Taylor Terrebonne. It's a, it's a large, you don't want to sharp, you don't want to ruin your sharp kitchen knives. You get mm-hmm. like something, he said, like a butter knife or a bl- like a soft edge. Um, make sure the foil's off. Make sure that little wire the thing. The cage is off. The cage is off, thank you. Um, and there's a seam on the line in the champagne. Uh-huh. And you follow the seam. Uh-huh. Now you need to be careful because obviously the champagne bottle, the champagne, t- the cork will come off, but it also cuts off some of the glass. Uh-huh. So you know when you're picking, you know you, when you're picking it up, it's pretty much a clean break. Yeah. But be, be careful when you pick it up because it's sharp ends, and you of course need to pour it in glasses yeah. because uh, you don't want to be you know <laughs> drinking out of a bottle that has red ragged ends. Right. Hmm. <laughs> well, it's a cool video. You should watch it. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, where will you be tippling your champagne tonight? I have some, I have two parties to go to. I do need to hit a, a, a liquor store before and bring a good bottle of champagne. I don't know which one I'm going to get yet. Um, another part that's really interesting about champagne are the um, there's also these grower producers that produce smaller batch um, batches of champagne, which have a little bit more um, different flavor to them. Um, some of them are organic. They mm-hmm. plant their plant and harvest their grapes via the the cycles of the moon. And, you know, this started about 20-something plus years ago, and people were making fun of them. And now that they're finding that these guys have great harvest, they have have great champagne, they're now getting a little bit more mainstream and attention. 
versus people kind of laughing at, you know, <laughs> oh, look at these hippies, you right, know, planning right. based on the moon yeah. kind of stuff. Go but, but they probably did like that when Don Perignon was alive. <laughs> right. Well, what was his quote again? I loved his quote. It was, uh, I've tasted the stars or something like that, let me, right? Let me see. It is, Quick, come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. Yeah, he knew he was on to something. He was on something. So, uh, well, thanks for coming by, Sue, and uh, don't overindulge tonight, you or anybody else out there. But well, you too. <laughs> make sure you indulge enough. Um, all right. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next year. Happy New Year. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.